The Elk Talk podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. Welcome to the Elk Talk podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson, presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building. It's like 120 yards away. What do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> well, Corey, I sure wish that the audience could see the video that I see of you this morning. You look like you just got off a gurney or something. A gurney? <laughs> yeah. I wish I was on a gurney. I have to still walk from point A to point B. What the heck happened? Uh September. Did you pack out that many elk? Or uh, I wish. <laughs> we, yeah, we packed out some elk, but not near as many as I'd hoped and planned on. Hmm. Well, I thought uh, maybe Donnie put you in the headlock or something. You guys were doing some fake wrestling up there on the hill over who got the, <laughs> who got the first shot or something. Up until uh, about the end of September, I think I would have won handily, but uh, he might have uh -huh. a chance now. I'm uh, really? I'm nursing hmm. some pinched nerves and torn muscles and strained muscles and all sorts of uh, neck and back stuff right now. <clears throat> well, there's got to be a story about how oh, that happened. Oh, boy, there is a story. Hmm. Do you want to start with the story or do we want to go well, chronological no, no, no. and get to the no, story? I, I kind of want to know the story yeah. of what happened because I, I've been gone for the last three weeks. And I come back and I talk to you, and it, it sounded like you were at the hospital or something. <laughs> it did he not. Said, no. He said, no, I'm just at home. Convalescing. Yeah. Convalescing. Yeah. yeah. The term convalescing has an implication of old infirmity. So. Mm. Yeah, I feel I feel like I'm about 70, honestly. Really? But uh, it's not from packing out elk or hiking, although I did both. Mm. Uh, you know, I hiked uh, about 170 miles in September. Wow. And yeah, we had a, we did a lot of hiking. I tracked everything this year, which is the first time I've actually tracked every single day that I've hiked. Uh, right at 170 miles and all of that with a backpack on. So I worked mm. out like crazy for the last year, was in good shape, had good nutrition program, and uh, came out of it fairly, fairly good. Mm. Um, but 
I did have some, you know, stiff traps and shoulders were a little sore just from packing weight and hiking so much with the backpack on. But yeah. Isaac drew a pretty good tag, and so I spent a week hunting with him. And the first night we got out to the area, we had about 30 minutes until dark. And I said, if we hurry, we can get up to a glassing point and see if we can see anything and hear any bugles. And mm -hmm. by hurry, I meant I'm on a motorcycle, cameraman John's on a motorcycle, and Isaac and his buddy Parker are on a four-wheeler. And the road is a good two-track road with lots of boulders and rocks and mm -hmm. uh, quite a few water bars, Kelly humps across it to uh, transfer the water from one side of the road to the other. Mm -hmm. And I'm familiar with the road, but not overly familiar as far as, you know, knowing what each water bar would bring. And so I'm going along and I'm, I'm riding the motorcycle too fast and I have a backpack uh -oh. on and I don't have a weapon or anything. So I'm, you know, I feel like I can, I can get up there first and do some glass and well, Isaac's on the four wheeler and cameraman John has the camera gear. And anyway, I'm going along and I'm gaining more and more confidence on these Kelly humps and uh, not to the point where I'm jumping them or anything, but I'm able to roll over them pretty smoothly without decelerating. And I don't know how fast <laughs> I was going, but I was going too fast. And I even had the thought, I don't want to wreck and get injured out here. That would ruin Isaac's hunt for him. But I still wanted to get to the top of the mountain quickly. So I was flying along on the flat part and there was a little water bar coming up and by the time I realized that it dropped into a pretty abrupt ditch on the back side uh, I hit the back brakes and I was sliding and realized I wasn't going to stop so I had to grab some front brake which is always a uh -oh. you know a little yeah. little danger but I, I've ridden motorcycles enough and I raced motorcycles so I'm confident in being able to use two brakes at one time without going too airborne? much yeah without doing too much of an endo but it still didn't stop me, and I slid into that ditch going a little faster than I would have wanted with the front brake deployed, and uh, it caused the front tire to hit and immediately stop. And when it did that, I thought I could save the, you know, salvage what could have been a pretty bad wreck. And I did for the most part, but in doing so, my shoulder and you know i was turned kind of sideways the handlebars turned sideways and i took the brunt of the force in my right shoulder and i felt it immediately you know it wasn't a pop but there was a quite a bit of stress and strain that transferred into that shoulder and it twisted the you know my back my neck everything and so i but th I, this is like the, you're the bike when you're talking about the shoulder impact the shoulder impact on the ground after you left no, the bike? No, I stayed on the bike, and that was the problem. Oh. Had I dismounted, oh. I'd have probably been fine, but I stayed on it mm. and basically did a, a bench press of the handlebars as they came back. Mm. And uh, it hit hard enough that I had a bruise about the size of a volleyball on my thigh and hip on the <laughs> right side where the handlebars finally Jammed connected with it. my leg. Yeah. And... In in my defense, the bike didn't do more than just tip over. I I, I kept it until all of that impact, and then I kind of just laid laid over to the side. But the impact uh, 
shifted quite a few things in my spine and vertebrae and a lot of muscles inflamed to protect that. And mm-hmm. being young and energetic and full of, uh, well, lacking, lacking wisdom like I am, I jumped right back on and headed up and pretended like nothing had happened. And for the next week, I carried a heavy pack and packed out an elk. And Hmm. when I got home, I realized I couldn't turn my head from side to side like I should be able to. But I thought, oh, a couple ibuprofen a day will take care of that. And so here we are three weeks later. And I finally went to a chiropractor yesterday. And he said, wow, you really messed yourself up. Hmm. So... Yeah, well, so that's why I've got a stiff neck and I can't lift my arms above shoulder height. And yeah, well, you're the second guy I know who's been on a motorcycle wreck elk hunting this year. Really? Yeah, my buddy Bart May broke his foot, had surgery a week ago Monday, and his season's done. Wow. Mm-hmm. And he's oh. one of those guys, oh, I've ridden motorcycles all my life. I, yeah. This is what I do. Mm. All right. I haven't ridden motorcycles all my life. I owned a motorcycle for one summer. I wrecked it three times and I sold it that fall. I'm like, that was a, that was a really good education. One, I lived through it. Two, I learned a lot about physics and the human body. And three, I realized what a bad investment a motorcycle is if you're going to crash it and sell it four months later. Oh, boy. Yeah. And it's a highly depreciable asset when the shoulder bars are bent and the headlights broke out. <laughs> the shoulder bars. That's exactly what they should be called. Yeah. When you put your shoulder through them, that's uh, they're, they're shoulder bars. I took, no. up I took up hitchhiking after that. <laughs> yeah. And hiking in general. Mm-hmm. Darn. Uh, I, uh... When I was racing motorcycles, I uh, I wouldn't race after July 1st because I figured up until that point, if I wrecked, I could recover from just about any injury in the two months leading up to elk season and be ready for elk season. So, I, you know, even in, at a young age, I had wisdom. Um, when I, I started or something? No, when I started hunting on him, you know, I thought it's slow, even on technical trails with a heavy pack. It's, you know, I'm not going fast enough to really get hurt. So, you know, there's no no concern there. But just being excited about a really good elk tag and wanting to be the first one up there to be able to utilize the last 20 minutes of daylight to find a big bull, I uh, I threw caution to the wind for a minute and uh, did a little. I, I, I wouldn't even say it's an injury. It's just more of a... Uh, there's some strained muscles and some misaligned <laughs> vertebrae, and uh, the oh, inflammation yeah. caused by that is keeping some muscles locked up, and they won't let go, and that's causing a lot of stiffness and pain. And well, sitting here looking at you in the video that the audience can't see, your head <laughs> appears to be adjusted somewhere between where your head normally is and your right shoulder. Uh, there's, and I've always had issues with that. I've had back issues from shooting a bow so much. The right side of my back developed way more than the left side. Uh, cause I, you know, I started shooting a bow when I was eight and from the time mm-hmm. I was 12 to 17, I shot, I couldn't even tell you how many arrows it, it was my, it, it was, it was what I did. I yeah. went to probably 12 to 15 archery tournaments from, April through July, every weekend, uh, I shot hundreds of arrows every night. 
And wow. so that's caused my, my back to actually, my spine is twisted slightly because my right side of my back is so much more developed. Hmm. And that caused, you know, developing that right side of the back, pulled my right shoulder down. So my right shoulder sits lower. So that caused my head to kick to the side to compensate. So I was a chiropractor's hmm. dream for <laughs> several years getting that worked on. And I've, I've implemented a uh, much more uh, robust workout program that works both sides of my entire body and trying to get some symmetry back. Well, I think we're going to have to do a, an Elk Talk podcast about Donnie and Corey wrecking mountain bikes. Because as you're telling this story, I'm thinking about the story Donnie told me of wrecking a mountain bike two or three years ago. Yeah. You you had one version of the story. Donnie had another version. And Donnie's version was that you led him astray. You gave him advice of how to technically uh, descend on this really bad trail. And you said, just give her some juice on the corner and you'll be fine. And the next thing Donnie knows, he's doing cartwheels with a motorcycle between his legs. Man, there, there's no truth to his story. That's, you know, <laughs> he, he did land on his head. So he probably doesn't remember things exactly like they happened. But no, it, he took a terrible spill on a, on a very technical part of a very steep trail. But he didn't even get hurt, other than he does have PTSD now. And every time he gets on, he got on the motorcycle this year, we were on a flat two-track road. And he held his hand out flat to me to look at. And I'm looking at it going, what? I don't see anything. And he's like, it's shaking. I'm like, okay. And he's like, I still get kind of nervous getting on a motorcycle. He rode motorcycles, I think, his whole life. And he uh, he's just had a couple unfortunate tip overs that have uh, damaged his mental ability to to uh, be confident on a motorcycle well we're good friends Corey, but you're never getting me on a motorcycle so if, yeah i did get one of your camera been, guys on a motorcycle one I know. time and uh yeah he came never, back. <laughs> yeah he said i'm never doing that again don't ask me to do that again and that so. was like, that was, if there were, you know, class one being the easiest and class five being don't even try this, mm -hmm. that was like not even a class one. It was a single track trail, but there was nothing dangerous. There were no ruts, rocks. It was just an easy, easy going trail through the mountains. So, yeah. So says the guy who's going to be responsible for buying a chiropractor's wife a new car. I do have a good chiropractor, and he is very uh, compassionate to my physical to state. Oh, <laughs> not, but not no. to your pocketbook. No. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah. a, he's a good guy. Mm, and I found right. out yesterday, mm -hmm. I've met my deductible for chiropractic care, which I didn't even know I was covered for chiropractic care through insurance. And now mm -hmm. I've met my deductible, so it's $11 a visit. So, well, there you go. Yeah, I might as well go there and drink coffee with him for that price. If he serves no. you free drinks, you'd you'd make out. It's a two and a half. Head. It's a two and a half hour drive one way to oh. see him. So, huh. well, that's what you get for living out in the sticks. I know. The Elk Talk podcast is brought to you by Go Hunt. If you want the best application tools, best research tools, the best gear shop, everything all in one place, Go Hunt is the place to get it. That's what we use. And that's what a lot of you use. If you're interested, go out to GoHunt.com. When you sign up, use promo code ELKTALK. And they're going to put $50 of gear credit in your shop account. And when you do that, 
you're going to have access to all these same tools that we use to make sure we go hunting every year. Gohunt.com, promo code ELKTALK. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTOK to save on your next order. ELKTOK Podcast is also brought to you by the University of Elk Hunting. The University of Elk Hunting was founded by Corey Jacobson. It is now part of the suite of courses out there at OutdoorClass.com. So if you want to sign up for the University of Elk Hunting and save some money, go out to OutdoorClass.com and use ELKTOK as your promo code, and you'll get 20% off. But more importantly, you're going to get the University of Elk Hunting. You're going to get other courses from Outdoor Class taught by Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, John Barclow, Hank Shaw, Jamie Teagan, and on and on and on. There you have it. Outdoorclass.com will get you the University of Elk Hunting. Just make sure you use promo code ELKTALK and save 20%. So no, it's, uh, it's it's all good. I will be. We've got a rifle hunt here in uh, ten days that I'm planning on leaving on. Uh, we rode motorcycles in there last week to check out the trail, and it's probably a class four. Uh, so we won't be taking motorcycles in there. I, I wouldn't yeah. take Donnie in there on motorcycles. So we're looking at uh, getting hold of our friend Bo Beatty and getting some llamas. Well, you you might be too late. Because no. I just, I got five llamas sitting here in Bozeman, Montana, and uh, rifle elk season opens on Saturday in a few days. And as quick as we get done with this podcast, we're packing the llamas and heading back into the, into the bush. And nice. uh, we're, we're, we're bringing no motorcycles. People get hurt. <laughs> up. I have never heard of anyone getting hurt on a llama. Uh, so, that is true. And, you know, and I, horses are you, no better than motorcycles, and uh, llamas seem to be the, the ticket. I, I view horses probably with even more fear or trepidation than I do motorcycles because I, I tell people horses are like a motorized transport that doesn't have a, a throttle mechanism, a brake, or a steering mechanism. 100% agree. Yep. But I know all the horse people listening are laughing because they know how to uh, how to operate a horse. I don't. You know the horse. The horse knows that I'm on there. He's like, "Oh, let's watch this." He tells the other horses, "Watch this," and he walks me underneath a bunch of low limbs or something, or he rubs me right up against a great big fir tree and scrapes me off the sad off one side of the saddle. And I think the horses all have a good laugh over it. Like, they they do. They are. They are, you know, they have their purpose and there are some good ones and there are some really good horse handlers, but I have very rarely heard of somebody that uses horses that hasn't had some kind of a rodeo at no. some point. And yeah. that's a rodeo that, I mean, the the implications there can be pretty devastating. Anyone, anyone who's done mountain hunting off a horse for more than five years is probably on a first name basis with an orthopedic surgeon. (laughs) (laughs) 
they're like bush pilots in Alaska. Yeah. It's yeah, like I'm, you will I'm, have an accident at some point, no matter how yeah. good you are. So yeah. I'm sure the audience is humored by our modes of transportation and how in our, I don't know if you call it age or lack of wisdom, people get hurt. But <laughs> you got any you got any elk hunting reports? I only got one. Oh, I've got several reports, but, and they're honestly, you know, we, we've had some great hunts and some great encounters, but me personally, mm -hmm. uh, I think I only packed my bow three days, all elk what? season. Yeah. Wow. Just, Corey. Just things got kind of, you know, I don't, New Mexico kind of kicked things off. It was tough. Um, I called for Donnie for seven days there. Then we came back and we headed on our Idaho hunt and cameraman John wanted to get a few days of hunting in. So I ended up going over early with him to call for him, meaning I would need to come back early. So it was going to cut my days of, of hunting, which, you know, I was fine with. I thought, man, well, I'll get him an elk, then I'll get an elk. And then he and Donnie will stay and Donnie will get an elk and everything will be great. And, uh, just didn't work out like that. The first area we went to, we had one really good encounter, uh, but man, there were people everywhere, everywhere. And we we're hunting, a, it's a motorized restricted hunting area. So that means you can use motorcycles to get mm -hmm. back into an area and take your camp in there. But then you have to shut it off and you can't ride it around. Like you can't hunt off of it. You can use it to pack camp in and out and you can use it to pack elk out. And that's it. Mm -hmm. And we knew that. So we knew there'd be some recreational riding going on, but... There was recreational riding, there was illegal use of motorized vehicles for hunting, and the poor elk in there were just, you know, they would run when they heard a bugle, they wouldn't bugle when they heard a bugle. It was, we were hunting pressured elk. So we ended up relocating after, I think, three days, which relocating meant a four and a half hour drive at midnight. Uh, so that kind of, <laughs> you know, that, that always ruins the next day because you're so tired and you, yeah. know, you just, so we... And it rained the next day, so that, that day was kind of wasted. Uh, the next area we got into, there was an outfitter in there with uh, seven or eight spike camps in one in every single drainage. Mm. And they'd been running multiple hunters through these drop camps uh, for several weeks. So the elk in there were even more skittish than in the motorcycle area. So we relocated once again, and I had basically one morning to hunt after that relocation, and uh, we got four inches of snow overnight, and uh, I drove home about hmm. noon that day. So that was my hunting season. I mean, for me personally, packing a bow, uh, I didn't hmm. fill a tag, but I did get a shot at an elk, and uh hmm. Unfortunately, I have to live with that for the next year and figure out how to uh, overcome that. But it was a hmm. really nice bowl, and there will be video footage proving that even a guy who shoots his bow a lot can mess up at 20 yards. Hmm. And wow. uh, Yeah, so then uh, I hunted with Jesse, and uh, I hunted with Sam a little bit before we went. We didn't get into anything, and then I came back hunted with Jesse. We had a great time, called in three bulls to her one evening, and uh, including one broadside at eight yards that Ooh. she was at full draw, came by broadside, and 
for whatever reason, she locked up and forgot to cow call and forgot to shoot. And it went by until it got her wind and then it whirled and ran and she never, never even got a shoot at it. But a simple cow call there would have stopped it and been an eight yard broadside shot. So, well, as a guy who's made that mistake a few times, I'm not going to comment at all. I'm just going to say, Way to go, Jesse. Nice sports, you know, sportsmanship <laughs> yeah. on your part. Yeah. Way to give the elk a chance. You know, that was kind of yeah. like the uh, the warning shots, which we'll get into here in a minute. But oh, we, uh, man. yeah, we went on uh, Isaac's hunt and Isaac learned an incredibly valuable lesson about not setting oh. up behind brush or trees. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very, very valuable lesson, very painful lesson, because mm. he was uh, he was hunting an area that had some really big elk and a lot of elk, and those elk were not cooperating quite like we thought they would until this one particular elk that was probably probably the biggest elk we saw decided to cooperate, and unfortunately. It uh, cooperated so well that Isaac held his bow back for two minutes and 12 seconds with a tree directly in front of him and the elk Uh directly in front of the tree at about 15 yards. Hmm. So that's uh, that's one that'll haunt him for a long time. But he did did get an elk and uh, his lucky horseshoe is still firmly planted, uh, wherever it lodged after he sat down on it when he was younger and it's not become dislodged yet. Uh, but I just texted you a picture of, uh, of the bull that I'm referencing there so you can ooh and ah over it. And, uh, the audience oh, is going to have to wait until destination elk launches to be able to see that one. But man, he's bugling, right? I, I see somebody's that's my hair. That's my head. And the bull yeah. is bugling that close. And Isaac is three yards to my right. Oh, man. Yeah. So That's a bummer. Yeah. Ooh, but, you that's know, a big one. Yeah, it was a good one. So, hmm. How'd uh, you get one? He got one, and uh, it all worked out. And hmm. uh, then we came home for two days. I hunted with Jesse again a little bit. And then uh, we headed out, archery season closed, and we headed out for our Outfitters for Hope hunt and uh, went right back in the same unit where Isaac and I had been the week before with Isaac's tag. So we had done a bunch of scouting and uh, all of the elk that we had scouted and seen mysteriously disappeared in three days. So we started over and uh, finally found them and had an incredible hunt. Samuel was the the young man's name. He's 14 from Pennsylvania. Uh, he's been through two bouts of leukemia. Oh. And uh, his brother, Ryan, who was 17, came out with him. He was the bone marrow uh, donor. Donor. And hmm. uh, his dad, Ryan, also came out. We had an incredible hunt with them. Uh, just you know, every year it's, I have all these worries and concerns about conditions and, you know, physical condition and needs and how we're going to get somebody in close to an elk. And I can't tell you how many times I would turn to Samuel and say, Hey, there's a bull bugling up on that mountain. Do you think you can get up there? And without even missing a beat, he'd just smile and say, I can sure try. And Hmm. he was on our heels the whole time. It was, it was a lot of fun hunting with him and 
Great attitude, shot a a really cool bull, and uh, we had a, uh, no, I'll I'll share it. You know, I was going to say we have to wait Mm -hmm. till Destination Elk, but we, uh, I don't know if you remember, it's been, I think, five, six years ago, we took a boy out named Austin, and Austin had a a brain tumor that was cancerous. And he shot a beautiful seven by eight bull at like six yards with the rifle. We called it in uh, his vision from the brain tumor. He couldn't see real well and he couldn't find the bull in the scope at six yards, which I don't know that any of us could. (laughs) But Donnie grabbed the barrel of the rifle and pointed it at the elk and said, pull the trigger. And he's like, I don't see it. And Donnie said, just pull the trigger. <laughs> so Donnie basically eyeballed the rifle at six yards and, and Austin shot the bull. And I still remember him standing over. I said, how big is it, Austin? He said, it's a 15-pointer. Being from Pennsylvania, he was taking full advantage of a you know seven-by-eight bull. But Austin, yeah. uh, unfortunately, passed away uh, a couple uh. years ago. And uh, I've been, you know, stayed in touch with his parents and we did a a really cool film from his hunt. Um, But his parents wanted to come out and his mom hadn't seen, never been to Idaho and wanted to see where he had hunted elk and just be able to experience that. And so Mm -hmm. I said, well, we'll be out there on a hunt. So why don't you meet us at noon on Thursday of that week? So they rented a car and drove out and, and met me there. And first thing his mom said when she got out was, did you realize that it was, I think it was six years ago, four or six years ago, uh, today that Austin shot his bull? And I had no I, I mean, Thursday was just a random day I picked during the week to meet him out there and turned out to be uh, the exact date that Austin had shot his bull. So kind of cool wow. coincidence there. And then they came back to camp and got to meet Samuel and his family and and talk about, you know, all the challenges of having children with cancer and those sort of things. And as we were getting ready to head out for the evening, I said to uh, Austin's parents, do you guys want to go out with us tonight and see if you can hear an elk bugle? And uh, of course they were hundred percent game as long as Samuel and his family were okay with it. And of course they were. So it was uh, pretty incredible, but we called in a bull to 180 yards and it stood over on a hillside and bugled nonstop. And it was uh, mm. just an average five point, but 180 yards away on an open hillside, it would bugle if I cracked a branch, if I raked a tree, if I calculated, <laughs> I bugled. If I did anything, that bull would bugle. And he just stood on the open hillside. Wouldn't come any closer, but we got a good show. And as I'm bugling back and forth with him, we hear a bull come over the back of the mountain bugling. And uh, anyway, I'll I'll save some of the details there. But it came down, (laughs) and uh, Samuel shot it right there uh, six years to the date that Austin had shot his bull and Austin's parents were able to stand right there and be a part of it. And so a really, uh, cool, cool experience that, you know, every year there's something that just, that happens that, uh, makes us realize that there's more to elk hunting than just elk hunting. And this year was no exception. Yeah. That's, I, I watch those videos that you guys do that, that, hunt that you do with the those kids and uh you know you almost want to watch it alone because when you're done watching it you get a little bit of moisture around the corner oh my goodness (laughs) yeah this this year was you know every year is a little different the the year austin shot his bull um 
for those that have watched it, he's the one that said the prayer at the bowl. And, you know, he was sobbing, uh, in gratitude for what we did and and praying that we'd be able to continue doing that for other kids with life-threatening illnesses. I mean, that was, that's the one that you want to watch by yourself if you're going to, if you're going to watch it because it's hard to keep a dry eye. But this one on the mountain, um, you know, we, we always, there's some emotion there, especially depending Mm -hmm. on the, the family dynamics and everything. But uh, there were a lot of people shedding a lot of tears on this one, just with Austin's parents there. And some of us were there for that hunt, um, you know, with Samuel and, and the, just the, the challenges that he's been through and, you know, some of that, it was, it was pretty emotional. And, you know, as you're walking up there, there's a dead elk laying there and we're all excited about that. But at the same time, you realize that, you know, the elk hunt is just the vehicle. And uh, there's yeah. there's a lot bigger things going on and taking place, and a lot bigger lessons being learned, and than just shooting an elk. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you and all the other people who help out with that. That's that's amazing, and you, the difference that you make in some person's life and their family's life is you, you can't measure that. uh, yeah it's you know and for us it's a selfish thing because we get so much out of it you know i i couldn't not do it no no matter what i would drop and donnie's even said if i had to choose between a week of elk hunting for myself or going on that hunt i wouldn't even think about buying an elk tag for myself you know it's just it's that special and that meaningful and it's something we love to do you know we still get to elk hunt we still get to chase elk we still get to bugle but there's just so much more that that comes from that, and so yeah, there's yeah. a great group of guys that were were very fortunate. Um, Russ Meyer, Tony Mudd, Donnie, and myself, and then cameraman John. Uh, I think we've been all of us have been doing it since the first year together, uh, and there have been other people that have you know been able to join us for a year here and there, mm-hmm. but it's by invitation only obviously we can't get too big a group and i know there's lots of people that want to be involved but a few years ago uh tony gilbertson won the men's division at the at the Mm -hmm. elk calling contest and he came up to me and said hey i just watched austin's film and i want to donate half of my winnings to outfitters for hope and i thought man that's incredibly generous of you um would you want to come be a part of it and he's like, man, I, I would have never even asked, but I, if you're willing and inviting, <laughs> yes, I will be there. Uh, he ended up donating his entire winnings um, from from winning the elk calling contest, and went on that hunt. And I think he would tell you it, it's been life changing for him. But for him to be there, and Austin's parents to be there, and Austin to be the one that convinced him to donate the money and be involved in it, it just, you know, kind of came full circle for him there. So we've, I mean, we've got a group of guys that real, you know, they're phenomenal hunters. Tony Mudd just literally this year completed the super slam with a bow, killed all 29 species of North American big game with a bow and did it. You know, he's not a, a wealthy person. He just set out several years ago and, set a goal and has been able to do that. Uh, Russ Meyer, you know, if there was ever a time when there was a food shortage, he'd be the first person I called to go and get food for the village because the guy is just a killer. (laughs) Uh, 
Donnie, John, <laughs> Tony Gilbertson, my, you know, just all of yeah. us there. We love elk hunting, but at the same time, we all realize it's, it's bigger than just elk hunting. So that group of guys just getting to spend a week with them, uh, would be the highlight of a season to be able to spend yeah. it with them on the hunt that we're on is just, uh, we're, we're incredibly blessed to do that. Well, glad you do it. Hope you keep doing it. And, uh, you're, like I said, I, oh, one other thing, people will be able to watch that in Destination Elk out on the Elk 101 so, YouTube channel. Everything that I've talked about will be on Destination Elk. Uh, our plan right now is to do what we've done the last, uh, I don't know, several years and launch it sometime in January. So won't mm -hmm. be coming out right away, but uh, it seems to be good timing for when the winter the winter doldrums are setting in and you get some elk hunting <laughs> excitement to get you through the winter and into spring. So yeah, the yeah. New Mexico hunt, Donnie's New Mexico hunt, our Idaho hunt, uh, where I had an opportunity and blew it. Uh, Isaac's hunt where he had an opportunity and blew it and redeemed himself. Uh, the outfitters for hope hunt. And then, uh, hopefully if, if my back and neck allow next week, we'll be going in and, uh, doing a, a backcountry rifle hunt, uh, late season post rut and uh, hopefully be something there to include in destination elk as well cool well while you are doing all that <clears throat> i was in the yukon for two weeks uh which I was saw not a picture elk. i yeah. saw a picture and it wasn't elk hunting no but it was pretty darn cool yeah There's these things called mountain caribou which are way it's a way different hunt than barren ground caribou I mean, we're talking mountain hunting. It's like elk yeah. hunting, or in some cases, almost like sheep hunting. And their body size is bigger. You know, they're a good bull is easily the size of a cow elk. Really? Uh, yeah. You know, the the better ones are probably even a little bigger than a raghorn bull uh, body size. Wow. And they grow these crazy antlers. Oh. Uh, um, and I shot some grouse. And I shot a bull moose. I was gonna say I saw a moose. Yeah. So it was a it was a fun trip. But before that, uh I was in Kentucky. I was just gonna say, I remember somebody had an opportunity to to hunt the the bluegrass state of Kentucky for elk yeah. and you were you were yep. assisting someone there on that hunt. Yeah. So every year, and right now we're doing it. Uh, we do a win a hunt with Randy, where somebody draws an you know they army out. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation does this, and we say, look, we'll do everything. You guys just coordinate it, and I'll give you at least a week of my time. I'll join the person. I'll do all I can to help them. If they don't want my help and they just want me there to you know, tell stories and cook, I'll do that too. You know, <laughs> if they want it filmed, we'll film it. If they don't want it filmed, we won't film it. Uh, and, uh, so the current, they, they always run it through November 1st. So I don't know when this podcast will drop, but if anyone's interested, you can go out to rmef.org. And I think it's like forward slash when a hunt or something. If you just go to their website, I, it'll just be say, there, I think but, there's a banner on the main page there. Yeah. But the fun part of it is, we raise on average about $200,000 a year net for the Elk Foundation in doing That's this. incredible. And yeah. I mean, I can't write a $200,000 check. I, I'd love to be able to, but I can't. But if our platforms are able to do that uh, and grow the membership of the Elk Foundation, I'm, I'm pretty excited to do it. Totally. And, uh, anyhow, 
uh, last year's winner was for a Kentucky elk tag. Uh, This is the last year that this property uh, is going to be privately owned. As of October 1st, it became Kentucky Wildlife Management Area, uh, owned by the state of Kentucky. And, uh, but the, the prior owner was a mining timber company and they get X number of permits. And so they donate a bunch of their permits and to get permits, you got to open your property to public funding. So, uh, army F ended up with one of these donated permits and gave it to this guy. His name is Mike, uh, from New York. 76-year-old guy who was in fantastic oh, shape. Yeah. Uh, he was almost he, as old as you. Almost, yeah. We, <laughs> we, we sat and talked about who the first president was that we voted for. And, and the younger guys sitting around are like, really? Who is that? Yeah, uh, I've never even heard but, of that president. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we, uh, we, we had a great time. Uh, the downside is, and I was warned of this, that, you know, Kentucky has had to really start hunting elk hard for a couple of reasons. One is the population has grown, the landowner, the, the damage complaints, because there's a lot of agriculture there. Uh, they've had to start hitting these elk really hard with hunting. Uh, these public areas, uh, some of them have now grown up. Uh, in Kentucky, those reclaimed mines grow, regrow in a hurry. Uh, and a lot of them have grown in with uh, non-native plants. So the habitat is not nearly what it used to be. Um, so we were warned this is going to be a really tough hunt. And anyone who thinks Kentucky is flat ground, <laughs> I challenge you to go there. It may not be what we see in in the Rockies where we have elevation gains of 4,000 feet, you know, from the trailhead to the top of the peak, but it's steep. It might only be gains of six to 800 feet, but it's steep. And worse than being steep, it grows some sort of, I don't even know what the heck it is, but it grabs a hold of your clothes and your pack and your everything else and tries to steal it from you. (laughs) So you're trying to walk through this stuff. And mind you, it's 85, 86 degrees with, I think, close to the same humidity level. Wow. So the bulls aren't real keen on running around all day in that kind of weather. Uh, but anyhow, we go to the spot uh, that is one of these wildlife management areas now, uh, open to public hunting. Run into a really nice young guy there. Uh, I think his name was Jonas, uh, first, first day of scouting. And, uh, he didn't hear anything. Uh, I hadn't heard anything. And then I walked way out on this point where it drops down into this just terrible place. And I let out a bugle and a bull bugled right below me in his bed. I'm like, Oh, all right. Let's, let's not make too much noise here. Let's, uh, let's keep this one in our pocket. Yeah. So we went and scouted a bunch more places and uh i think mike was pretty excited he's like man this randy guy the first call he makes geez bull right there (laughs) and uh uh i mean i'll be honest with you elsa i thought oh this is like fish in a barrel here this is this (laughs) this guy had no idea how quickly he's gonna get shot tomorrow morning so we went and just did a lot of scouting and you know, checking this spot, checking that spot. And one thing I noted is how few tracks I was seeing 
really nothing in the way of rubs or it's like man if there's a lot of elk here they fly around because you think you'd see some tracks yeah. it, it, it it seems like it rains about every other day and so there's all kinds of mud you'd think you'd see fresh tracks but we didn't see much so opening morning we go well we know where one is we're going out there uh we go out there and we kind of hunt our way out there it's about a two mile hike out there through this jungle brush uh and we get out there and i let out a couple cow calls and nothing so i use my tube make it a little louder and all of a sudden a bull bugles further down in that hole below us but there's this rock rim that if you can just visualize this big long point going out there and they'd taken the top off the mountain for coal mining and now it's regrown with stuff that's 20 30 feet high and we're trying to navigate through that while the the this face that faces north they're down in this north bowl obviously it's hot they're they're down in those places it's probably 60 or 70 feet of sheer cliff and i'm like we aren't calling that bull up this cliff. <laughs> you know, I think they're flying around here because they're not leaving any tracks, but I don't think he's flying up here. Uh, and so Mike, his, his brother Tim was with another super great guy. I had so much fun with these guys, such wonderful people. Had the great attitude of just, man, I'm in Kentucky and I got an elk tag. This <laughs> what, you know, what more could I ask for? And so... I tell them, I'm like, we got to drop off this ledge, find a, a, a way to get off this face and get down on the next bench. So we do that and we get down to the next bench. Well, by now, the thermals are completely different and, and messing us up there. They, they had been coming down this drainage to our right. And so we kind of had a crosswind. Uh, but now that when the sun got higher, the thermals are, the way they're, all these fingers come together. I'm standing there, I'm like, and this wind is so squirrely. It's half the time it's this way, half the time it's that way. I told Mike, I said, you know what I think we're going to do? We're just going to sit right here in this afternoon when the shadows come into this drainage and the thermals are predictable again. We're going to drop down and get that bull. And it's about 400 feet of vertical down into this absolute mess. Are you able to glass well, anything at all? Like, are there no, any openings? No, it's just all no. solid. You do not need binoculars to hunt in Kentucky. <laughs> just uh, That's just added weight. Or because you're in the habit of you like glassing over to those trees that you can see way over there through a little hole in the trees you're standing in. It, there's no place you could glass more than 60 yards, 70 yards. Wow. Uh, you know, that was, that was a long distance. And so anyhow, we're sitting there, we're kind of taking our naps and... Every once in a while, I'd let out a, a cow call just to see if this bull would respond, and he would. He'd, he's bedded. And at the same time, just, you know, didn't really give out anything. So it gets to be about 4.30, 5 o'clock, shadows. There's, there's a, a song about Kentucky. It says where the sun comes up at 10 in the morning and goes down at 3 in the day. <laughs> it's true. Really? Because because of how steep these haulers they call them we call them we'd call them coolies and canyons they call them haulers the shadows come real quickly and uh so we get up and we start easing the direction over to where i think this bull is and uh, i'm trying to locate if they'd move to this 
this big water hole that there's like a dike someone had built there. And uh, little did we, well, while we're taking our nap, we hear some ATVs down below us. I'm like, what? My map doesn't show an ATV trail down in that canyon. And, well, <laughs> in the bottom of every canyon, someone has built, a, has created an ATV trail and a side-by-side trail. And I'm like, uh, it's not good. I think those guys are closer to that bowl than we are. And uh, so I'm trying, I'm thinking, well, I better call to get a location on this bowl. And if we do, we better hustle. I told Mike, I said, if he bugles, we're just going. Well, sure enough, I let out this squeaky little bugle and he responds immediately. I'm like, come on, we got to figure out our way down here. And we don't get 50 yards off this bench we're standing on. And all of a sudden, boom, whack. (laughs) (laughs) Some other guy, this is a mistake on my part. Some other guys, and and there were probably, I don't know, a dozen other hunters in there, uh, in this general area. They had been sitting there uh, listening to me keep this bull somewhat located during the day. (laughs) And so they drive underneath in their side-by-sides. And walk up and shoot him. Man. It's like, well, and we drop down enough to where we can hear him talking. And there you can use radios and stuff. So they're radioing their buddies. And all of a sudden, it's like a swarm of of uh, side by side. Maybe it was only one. It sounded like a whole swarm of them. But we hear them talking down there. It's so still. We can hear everything. They're like, yeah. Someone's got to go kill that great big bull up on the ridge there. <laughs> I think they were talking about us. So. Yeah. Hey, uh, that that was a bummer the first day. And then the next day, we did not hear an elk. We didn't see an elk. We didn't see an elk track. Wow. And in this country, I mean, these guys are really giving it an effort. They're putting on anywhere from six to eight miles wow. in this jungle brush and walking these trails and and other places so i i give mike and tim all the credit in the world and they are smiling the whole time yeah it's like you know what this is the kind of hunt that if you had somebody with you who was a sourpuss kind of a <laughs> every day's a bad day this would not have been any fun yeah and uh so then day three we sneak around this bench kind of where we we'd had that encounter with that one and in the dark, I'm like, all right, we're going in in the dark. And we didn't hear any ATVs. I think everybody hunts the weekend and then they quit. Because we never saw another hunter after that opening day. <laughs> and uh, we go in there and do a couple beagles and get a response. I'm like, all right, let's move in on this guy. He's actually above us. And it's morning, and we got a downhill thermal. We we're we're killing this bull. He he is as good as dead. And uh, so we sneak around this nose, and we we're on this bench. Like and when I say bench, what it is is there's these terraces where they go and scrape uh, either a roadbed in, or they just scrape some coal out of there. And they're grown up. They're 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 oak trees in there, forty feet high already and but it's a flat spot and it has a little bit of visibility so we sneak around the point of this big ridge and i'm like i can hear him up there he's he's gonna come down here and he'd just walk around up there like 150 yards above us and he'd bugle at us 
And I'm like, damn it, how do I get him to come down here? And because we've now got this really steep face that we'd have to climb up and it would be so noisy. And uh, so we played with that guy. He didn't sound like a big boy, you know, but maybe he was. We never got a glimpse <laughs> of him. Uh, but if I'd bugle, he'd quit. He'd, he'd just, the next time I'd hear him, he'd be far off and I'd cow call a little bit. And then he'd, next time he'd bugle, he'd be real close. So I don't know what I was doing wrong there, Corey. I, I almost called you. You should have. Corey, <laughs> I got a bull at 150 yards. <laughs> what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> and uh, Well, based so, on what you just the, told me and the little bit I know, quit bugling and keep uh-huh. cow calling. It's, oh, that's pretty much what I did. It's like, you know what, Randy? <laughs> you don't have to be Einstein to figure out that he's afraid of your bugles. Uh, so that's what we did. And then we tried the, we call it the cow party, where you sit down and you just make a lot of cow calls, see if you can get him to come in silently. So the only direction he could have come in based on where these cliffs are was over to our southwest. So I set Mike up over there and I dropped back about 100 yards. And I just cow called and cow called. And I thought, well, if he's afraid of things, maybe he'll just get down on this bench where on he'll come and sneak in. And maybe he snuck in and looked and we didn't see him. Because you could hear amongst all the white oak acorns, acorns, they call them. <laughs> acorns. Acorns, <laughs> acorns dropping. It was like raining acorns. Uh, but every once in a while, you'd hear a rock slide or something. It's like, okay, an acorn didn't do that. But never saw him, <laughs> never got eyes on him. Uh, stayed there most of the day. Uh, didn't, again, didn't see an elk, didn't get a shot. Uh, and then we went to another spot in the afternoon, uh, got another bowl to bugle. Uh, but he was so far away. He, I'm like, was that a bugle? And Tim, the younger brother, he's got better hearing than me and Mike. Uh, he's like, yeah, that was a bugle. And but it was late in the day, and we, we could you really get him to respond again. And uh, we kept going back to those places where there were some characteristics. Anything that was uh, heavily shaded, protected to the north by a southern ridge, that's where all the elk were. What little sign we saw, that's where they were. <laughs> and uh, I wish I could say that Mike got a shot at a bull, but he didn't. Wow. And I would say it's some of the hardest elk hunting I've ever done. It, it, you know, the numbers are way down and the, you know, we ran into a couple of people. They're like, oh, too bad you didn't get allocated or, or assigned or whatever it is to one of these real limited entry places. Those bulls are dumb. They, they don't get any hunting pressure. Hey, you, you'd shoot one right away. <laughs> well, that wasn't our situation. This was hunting land open to the public everyone who drew a tag for that unit could be there and a lot of them were there the opening morning it was a it just it sounded like a a stock car race man people warming up their (laughs) their side by side (laughs) but that's you know that's how it goes yeah that's public hunting i i felt bad though because mike had driven all the way down and when you hear kentucky you think about you know oh big bowl limited entry not, like it's yeah. it's hard to get a tag so they've got to be just everywhere right. <clears throat> yeah but these enrolled properties that have uh I, I don't quite understand it but uh, you get more tags if you 
and jump into one of these they call them wild well they call them wildlife management areas but they're really private property that are part of a wildlife management property group so uh those ones get a lot of pressure uh anyone who had the tag in this big region could come there and it was known that that's where most the elk in this region were and so most of the hunters were there <laughs> uh, so i uh I don't know that I'm applying for Kentucky anymore. No. Well, maybe a different zone or something, but well, maybe. Maybe. Uh I it's it's really cool country. It it was so fascinating. I I had a blast. Uh I feel like I learned a ton um about the history of of how that landscape got formed, how it became elk habitat, uh all those kind of things, but if you think you're going to go on one of these general draw tags in Kentucky and you're going to walk out there and there's just going to be bulls walking around in open areas. Not no. the case. All huh? the, no, all the locals are like, oh, too bad you weren't here 10 years ago. All this stuff wasn't growing up like this. And they weren't, <laughs> they weren't shooting many. Yeah. You see that little ridge right there that, that were, it was wide open. I shot a seven by seven there 12 wow. years ago. Like really? Oh yeah, but man, it's too bad you guys are hunting around here. There's some other places that are a little more restricted. It's too bad. Well, <laughs> it's too here, bad. here we are. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, it was a ton of fun. Uh, two great guys who gave it just a really, really good effort for how hard the conditions were. You know, full moon. Oh yeah. Hot. The, the last day we hunted, the temperature up where we were hunting on his truck registered 87 degrees. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, yeah. So, at night, it was getting down into the high 50s. Well, you know, that, the, the elk don't hardly even get a, a, a time of day where they could go out and be rutting and, yeah. and carrying on when it's that hot. And so, I asked some people, is it normally this hot in early October? And they're like, no. It's, usually, we're talking low 70s i'm like mm, okay so <laughs> i you know chalk that one up to lesson learned i uh i told mike that if ever he draws a tag out west let me know i'm gonna just drop what i'm doing up I'll, I'll offer to come and help him pack out a bull wherever else he draws a tag because I, I just feel bad you know yeah that's the first sweepstakes winner where we've had that we didn't end up shooting a bull and i uh i feel bad yeah so I'll, I'll I'll make it up to him somehow. Maybe yes. uh, maybe maybe I could win a Pennsylvania tag, and you could take me on the sweepstakes hunt there. Uh, I'd come along and cook. I ain't coming along and calling. Why? I heard that in Pennsylvania, no. they're like you just shut a truck door and they come running. Hmm. Okay, maybe that's how it is. I'll bring my truck. We'll slam the door a yeah. couple times. I heard the same thing about <laughs> Kentucky before you went, though, too. So now I'm starting to wonder, yeah. are these uh, no. eastern states is, I mean, there's obviously yeah. big elk, and I think there's units there that are good, but yeah, there's some of those yeah, we, that are. We, we uh, RMEF uh, knows this guy down there who helps a lot of their hunters. His name is Don. Uh, he's an outfitter, actually. And uh, he was a super big help. He's like, oh, man, I wish you guys were hunting the unit my tags are for this year. I, uh, <laughs> and he came he came over to the Airbnb we rented. He's like, boys, if you get one, you will have earned it in this spot. Wow. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, I'm just trying to set your expectations properly. Hmm. And uh, he gave us a lot of pointers, things to think about. And it was a super big help. Um uh, but 
that's how it goes. Yep. And so whoever wins the sweepstakes this year, uh, what we do is we just apply for them in all the Western states uh, and until they draw. And then when they draw, we go. Hmm. So what about Idaho? You're disqualified. What about Idaho? Do you, uh, do you mm-hmm. have them try to buy an over-the-counter tag? Well, it's called yeah, over-the-counter. We, <laughs> yeah, we've had people who said, hey, we'll uh, – We'll we'll just go hunting over the counter in Colorado. I'm like, why don't you try a second year of drawing? So yeah. I give everybody a mulligan, man. If if you end up not drawing, uh, let's let's try it again. Let's let you know if you want a sweepstake, you hope that you don't have to hunt over the counter in Colorado, yeah. but or in Idaho. So I just bring uh, that up because you know we're we're approaching the December first date, and uh, that's when right. non-resident over-the-counter yep. tags go on sale in Idaho, and they have the, the great tag race where you get assigned mm-hmm. a random number in this over-the-counter process, and yeah. uh, your random lottery number determines when you get to purchase your tag. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it sounds an awful lot like a, a lottery draw, limited entry type of a thing, uh, and I haven't heard that uh, they've changed it, which I, I can't believe after the last two or three years, the process that it's been that they haven't changed it but yeah well the the guy this year actually lives in idaho the the guy the guy who drew two years ago so we applied him the last two years and he said well why don't we just go hunt a general tag in idaho i said well we can do that if that's what you want to do but i'd really like to do it one more year can you hang with me one more year he's like yeah i said but if we don't draw on new mexico or wyoming or you know somewhere next year we're, we're let's just do idaho i live here i've never shot a bull i don't i think he said he's never shot a bull i just love to go somewhere here in idaho Man. i'm like all right if that's the case we'll go rent some llamas we'll set up a heck of a good camp and we'll try to find one yeah so we'll see nice that that's the other reason we have a November 1st deadline is because of your Idaho <laughs> thing. You know, if somebody was just dead set that they wanted to do this sweepstakes hunt on an Idaho general hunt, I, we, we will announce the winner and notify them before the December 1st Idaho deadline. So that that would be an option. But I've, I've tried to talk them out of that. Man, I would hope not, so. Not for any reason other than, I just, I hope they can draw somewhere else. I hope there's somewhere better than an Idaho over-the-counter general tag to be able to go on a a sweepstakes type of a hunt. Yeah. So, but we'll see. It's just a ton of fun. I've been so lucky, Corey. Everyone who, uh, a a lot of people get asked to do sweepstakes hunt, and most people decline, and they're like, how do you dare do that? You know, you could end up with a real jerk. It's like, yeah, I could, but you know what? everybody who we've ended up with has been just an absolute gem of a person. I consider them friends and we stay in touch. And when you help somebody get their first bull elk, like we have quite yeah. a few of these people, that's, that just, it means a lot more to me than if I were to go shoot another elk. Totally. And so, and we've only, I, I've only done, I think two or three, giveaway hunts but same with us we've been so fortunate the guys that we've got to go with have been just incredible and a lot of yeah. fun like I say it's just so rewarding uh when somebody's grateful yeah. you know wh- yeah. whether they've shot one or a hundred you know when you get to go and be involved and, and they're grateful for that opportunity it 
I think I'm with you. I'd rather rather be with them and do that than go and hunt that same area myself. Yeah. And if everybody enters and, you know, becomes an RMEF member or upgrades their membership and you don't win, well, you know, you're, uh, you're supporting conservation totally. too. So yeah. it's, uh, I think the total value of the package they said on their website this year is a little over $18,000. Wow. Because yeah. there's this huge gear package gear, from yeah. all, all my partners, you know, the, the normal ones who are always donating. And so if, you know, Mike didn't get an elk, but he got an awful lot of gear out of the deal. So, <laughs> but, uh, uh, so I have a question so, for you. Uh-oh. Speaking, speaking of Kentucky and it being super thick, mm-hmm. you're hunting there during the rut. Yep. And it's tough to, to get an elk in to even shoot with a rifle. Yep. Where I'm planning on going in 10 days, it's going to be post-rut, mm-hmm. transitioning yep. into late season. Mm-hmm. And it is brutal, nasty to get in there. Yep. And once once you get in there, there's no openings. Mm-hmm. How do you hunt that? Uh, well, it sounds like just the the pure fact that it's a sanctuary. Oh, there'll be out there. Yeah, so you got a sanctuary, right? You, you know that the bulls are going to be there because of distance, topography, everything else. But they wouldn't be there if there isn't some sort of food. If there isn't some sort of water, so they will be there based on they do they can satisfy their other needs, but they're going to be hanging out in true sanctuaries. And if there's no glassing areas, when when's the first day of the season? Uh, it's already open, but we're going on the 28th of October, and it closes on the 3rd of November. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I was going to say, like this week, Montana openers. Uh, the earliest I ever remember it being October 21st, at least the first day, there's going to be a little bit of bugling action. Yeah. And then when all the gunfire starts, it's like, no, man, I'm not going to be doing that anymore. Old Jack, he, he got the bugling over there and someone, he died of lead poisoning this morning, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I, that that's what you're talking about is probably why I say a post-rut hunt is the toughest time to kill elk, highly pressured elk on public land. Because if they smell people, if they hear people, they're not coming out of their beds until that last little bit of daylight. Or they're not going to stay out very long in the morning except for that first little bit of daylight. And then they're heading back into the deep timber. And it's it's just really, really tough. And so I, I wish so, I had any. It's so thick and so steep that you just, you can't get a vantage point. Yeah. You can't see any openings. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid, I mean, I think the water, you know, they're getting moisture. There's, I mean, there was four inches of snow there last week. Yeah. So they don't have to go to a water hole or a water source necessarily to get adequate water. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just. Is it, is it just you or do you have a camera guy following you around? Mm-hmm camera guy and donnie both donnie and i have a tag so all right well that triples the amount of movement and the amount of noise yeah Uh, so that's why i do so much of my post-rut hunting glassing and i know you're saying there's not places to glass it's like okay is there an avalanche chute can i look across into an opposite slope is there you know some place where i know they're going to be traveling from a bedding to a feeding area where they're going to cross a little opening. And yeah. I know some people are like, well, that's not fun. That's like, no. you know, 
Well, I get that. But there's a reason why these bulls are so hard to kill in the post rut period. Because they find places like you're talking about. Yep. They just don't lend themselves to effective glassing or call. It's too late for calling to really work. The places they're going to bed, one guy sneaking up in there is, is hard. You know, they're, they're going to bed in some place that either rock or scree or, or brush. They're going to hear you coming. Yep. And the other thing about that bedding area, it's going to have a quick exit for them where they're going to stand up. They're going to say, that's danger. Boom. They're out of there. Three steps and, may, and they're gone. And yeah, it's going to take me it, an hour to get over to where they just were. Yeah. And so you might hear them leaving, but you're probably not going to get them, you know, get a, a sight of them leaving. The other part is these beds where they choose to bed in these sanctuary areas, they know what the wind currents are doing. They yeah. find these little spots where the wind swirls and curls because, okay, there's a, a drop in the ridge line and it's the shade. It's right on the edge of the shade. So you got the mixing of the uphill thermal and the downhill thermal. You got, you know, no matter where the wind comes from, they know, okay, uh, they, they don't have a compass where they say, oh, that's a east wind. I'm going to bed here. But they know what an east wind is and they know the little pockets where when the wind's out of the east, bedding here the, with the swirl and everything else, this bedding spot is way better on an east wind than that one over there that's way better bedding in a northwest wind because of what the wind swirls do and yeah. the, the way the thermals mix and everything and the else. funnels, I mean, they get it to where anywhere you try to approach, it's just funneling that wind right down to them. Mm -hmm. and yeah, and that's that's what makes it so hard to kill them, even though you got a rifle in your hand. Yeah. And uh, you know what I always tell, uh, my answer to that when people say, there's no place to glass, there's no place to this or that, I'm like, go find a different area. Yeah, but there's elk <laughs> in here, and that's the, I mean, they go in there from all these surrounding areas, yeah. and you can glass from two miles away in these ribbon cliffs, and they'll be mm -hmm. right above the cliffs. There's a little bench just all along this canyon. Mm -hmm. But you can't, if you go in above them, you can't see down into that bench. You can't come in from below them because it's just cliffs. Right. So you have to yep. come in from the side. And it's just this flat, cliffy bench area that is thick with brush. And, mm -hmm. I mean, your only option really is just to slip along quietly and hope that you can spot one laying there 40 yards ahead of you in the brush. And which you know how that is unless you have a right. rainstorm or a solid wind to cover your sound they're going to hear you in yeah if you lock out and you get four inches of fresh snow or something sometimes that makes it quiet enough but they're just smart you know yeah. and about the time you're going to be in there is when they start going from their solo post rut mode to grouping up into bachelor groups in the in the late season and now you got three or four of them <laughs> bedded in, in the same general area yeah they're all bedded in a different if you've ever watched how elk bed some of the elk bed a little bit further off like 30 yards off why because there's a different vantage point there yeah. or there's a different wind pattern there <laughs> and, it's almost like they're working as a team against us uh yeah imagine that right they've figured out from wolves, from lions, from bears, from humans. You know, if we spread out a little bit and we all look a certain direction, listen a different direction, and give ourselves a slightly different wind direction, the odds are one of us 
are going to smell, see, or hear this. And the other part of that is they, yeah, it's not like if one of them sees, smells, or hears something that the other three just lay there and say, ah, oh, Jackie, if he, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> they, they, even though Jack might be considered the village idiot, when he stands up, the other three bulls just take off. They're yeah. like, you know what? We're, they we're, don't, we're they not going to stand and look. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or the, uh, and that kind of gets bred out of them, right? The ones that stood around and looked ended up getting a victory lap in somebody's Dodge Ram, and they, you know, they're sitting on someone's wall back home. <laughs> so that that trait of standing around and looking, it's not a, it, it, it doesn't get bred into the next generation. <laughs> no, Darwin says that trait's going to go away pretty quick. So, uh, you what you described, Corey, is probably the most difficult. Hunting, I, I think it's harder than than archery hunting. Yeah. Oh, because at least archery in hunting to me is easy. Like seriously, as far as locating elk, which I think is the hardest thing to do. Mm-hmm. Once you locate elk, it's you, you can hunt them no matter what the weapon is. Mm-hmm. But when you're archery hunting, you typically you're hunting during the rut, and it's not that difficult to locate elk because they bugle. Yeah, and uh, yeah. this time of year when they're going, you know, and they're still bugling a little bit. We've heard when I had Sam out last night, we heard a distant bugle, and because my ears are ringing and my balance is a little bit off because of my neck stuff that's going on, <laughs> I couldn't tell what direction it'd come from. But we did hear a bugle last night, one single bugle, and we actually spent an hour and a half within uh, 150 yards of a bugling bull on Monday morning with Sam. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's just so thick, even in that, within bugling, we couldn't get a shot. And he had cows, so we couldn't just go busting in and ended up not getting a shot. But you so, get into that late season, and that's the thing that concerns me is how do you find those elk? And if you can't glass them, it's, yeah. you know they're there, but you still have to f- figure out a way to find them. Yeah, and if you go in there looking for tracks or beds, there's a really good chance you bump them. Yeah. And now they're two or three drainages over yeah. some other direction. So and even more wary. Yeah. So uh, I just always try to find, even in the thickest thick stuff, it's like, okay, is there an avalanche chute? Is there a little toe to the nose of a ridge where the timber's blown down and there's a little grass growing up? Because they don't need much in the way of forage yeah. to, to get through this post-rut period. And then they'll start going into areas where there's some more maybe timber cuts or burns or something that creates some edge areas that, give them a little more forage opportunity yeah but yeah i, I, I you, you should pick a worse time yeah i, I don't know if i can <laughs> I, I, I was gonna say <laughs> you'd be hard pressed to find a more difficult hunt of what you what you're fixing to do there nice that's great which is know. why i i'm i'm going for the montana rifle elk opener this weekend for four days me and jace but then we get to the last part of October and the first part of November. I deer hunt then. <laughs> like, I wait for these bulls to get back into their late season mode and they bachelor up. They start staying out a little later. They start staying out a little longer or coming out a little earlier in the afternoon. They have a greater demand for food because it's later into the season. The temperatures are colder. They've been rutting and not really eating much. Their behavior starts changing, and they're in groups of, you know, three to eight. 
So it's a lot easier to see one of them. One yeah. of them will be dumb enough to stand up and take a leak or something in the <laughs> middle of the day out of their beds, and you might catch a glimpse of them. And so that's why I <laughs> I wish I could tell you that I do a lot of elk hunting. It was the last weekend of October, first weekend of November. I do, and I've shot elk there, but it's it's tough sledding. Yeah. Like so. you say, once they come out in that open stuff, it's, you know, you can you can almost pattern them during that little right. bit later in the season. They're going to come out on an open ridge at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and the next yep. day, they're unless they get pushed, they're going to be right there in that same place. But when they aren't yep. coming out in the open and they're just hunkered down waiting for the season to change and the pressure to leave, yep. I just, I'm, I'm looking, I mean, we're trying to figure out the best way in there. We tried two different ways on motorcycles to get somewhat close and it's just not feasible. Plus by then we're probably going to have snow. So riding a motorcycle mm-hmm. on a single track through the mountains in snow is not going to be the, the way to do it. Llamas sound great, but there's no pack trails going into there. It's mm-hmm. just bushwhacking. And so yeah. that's my, that's my next, uh, between now and the end of next week, I've got to go in there and bushwhack and see if there's an open ridge or something that we can at least cut out with a little chainsaw and get llamas partway yeah. in there. Yeah. It's just far enough. It's it's too far to day hunt, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't be very fun to pack an elk out of there on your back. So llamas yeah. become uh, the next best thing. Yeah. How far, when you say too far to day hunt, if you had to put a distance on that. And I know it depends on bushwhacking versus walking trail versus steep versus flat. Five miles. As a crow flies, it's about four miles hiking in there. The paths that I've been kind of drawn up the ridge that if we can get on a ridge and kind of navigate the ridges to get back in there, uh, true distance is probably going to be about six, six and a half miles. Yeah. Well, where I'm going is one of the most heavily hunted units in Montana. But by going in five miles with llamas, I'm thinking we're going to thin out most of the day hunters, the weekend warrior types. Yeah. And we're going to use that hunting pressure from the folks who might go two or three miles. We're using that as our kind of hunting tactic. Yeah. All right. These guys, about hour before... Legal shooting light, car doors are slamming, guys are burping and farting and, uh, you, you know, walking in in their headlamps and talking and they all know what's going on. Yep. And uh, there's a few saddles and, and, and trails that I know of that go through some areas that I think, and, and we're not looking for big bulls, you know, I... Like Jace, the camera guy, I told him, you, you're you the shooter. You film everything. And once the bull shows up, I'll, I'll point the, the camera. camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Jace is like, look, I'll shoot a cow, he, he, you know, in Montana uh, right now in this unit. Because it's, uh, they, they just say it's over pop, uh, too high of over objective. They let you shoot a cow or a branch antler bull. Well, can't they just bring so, in more grizzly bears and help with the population? No, because we're exporting all those to Washington. Oh, that's right. Other places. That's right. We, if we're going to have an eBay auction. Hey, this lot of 40 grizzly bears, who wants to take them? Yeah, I was going to say, Washington only wants 10. I would, If I was giving yeah. them grizzly bears, I'd be like, you have to take at least 100. Exactly. Minimum, minimum order like, quantity. Yeah, zero or 100. Yep. And we got 100 of them. <laughs> we'll but, round them up. Yeah. So this spot. 
uh, where we're going. I just know it's going to be a ton of hunting pressure. And that's why I'm going in a couple days early. It's like, I want to get in there. I want to get my camp set up. And I want to know exactly what has changed since the last time I was in there yeah. five years ago, six years ago. Uh, and see, it happens. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people will challenge us and say, oh, you use, you do these limited entry units all the time. No, not all the time. I mean, yeah. last year we did general units in Wyoming. Uh, this year we're doing general units in Montana. And you will be hard-pressed to find a more pressured area than where we're going. I'm like, all right, we'll take your challenge. Yeah. I'll see if we can find one. So, <laughs> well, this know. area that I'm looking at going into, uh, it's not, I mean, I haven't shot an elk yet this year, so I'm, I'm looking to put meat in the freezer, but at the same time, you don't go back into an area like that and shoot a spike. So, Yeah. Well, if you need some meat in your freezer, I have this moose from the Yukon. Ooh. That. <laughs> those things are big yeah i uh i uh yeah i have i have an axis deer so I, i'm covered for a oh, while they aren't well, as big as go. an elk but man they're good everybody yeah. always said they're better than elk meat and i don't know that i'd say they're better than elk meat but mm-hmm. the burger we had ground up got mixed with uh 15 or 20 percent pork fat mm-hmm and when you do that, it uh, it's hard to find something that tastes as good as that burger does. Oh, I bet. Yeah, so uh, I'm uh, I, I bought I'm bringing another freezer into the office here. <laughs> uh, I, I did not community so, freezer. All your all your camera guys can grab moose meat whenever they need it. And oh yeah, that's yeah. Uh, you know I shot an antelope. And I don't bring that to the office. I shot an antelope this year. That's like stays at home. You feed that to the so dogs, shot, hopefully. Not a chance. I just, <laughs> if someone's dog tried to eat my antelope, they, they, they might be. I don't. They, they might be. There, there must be like a drastic difference, like a black and white. Either it's good or it's terrible, or you had COVID and you've lost your sense of taste, or something happened because. The antelope that I have shot, it took, I mean, I just finally had to just grind it up and mix it with bacon bit and like, I couldn't mm. eat it. It tasted like, like moss that had grown on the top of a rock that had baked in the desert sun and then some sagebrush had died and fell on it and the meat got mixed up with that and a little bit of dirt. Wow. Wow. My appreciation for your field preparation skills no. just went to zero that, I, Corey. Getting the hide uh, off it quick, getting it on ice. And I have other buddies <laughs> yeah. that are like, antelope is the best meat. I love it. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. man, I've taken care of it good. There just must be differences yeah. in, in how antelope bad, tastes. I'm going to just say bad luck on your part. Yeah. You must have got the one out of every, maybe one out of every 50,000 antelope is foul. Yeah. You lucked out. And I've heard people talk about elk being gamey or elk being tough. And I've never had a single elk, no matter how big, no matter what season, they've all tasted the same and it's delicious. But man, antelope, I have not had a good experience with antelope. And I hear people all the time that, oh, it's the best meat ever. It's tender. It's delicious. You can't even, there's no gamey taste to it. And uh, that hasn't been my experience. Huh. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. I'll, I'll fix that up for you. Okay. But, you know, we shot mountain caribou last week, and everyone up north is like, oh, you can't shoot those caribou in the rut. That late September, early October, those things are 
inedible. <laughs> so Marcus and I donated his back straps and then my tenderloins to the camp cause. And everyone was like, ah, I don't know about this. And so I <laughs> marinated them for about eight hours before I cooked it. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh. Uh, what? You sure this is caribou? Like, yeah, I think you guys in your old wives' tales are just full of horse hockey. But, well, uh, and it's just, you got to look at it. How does the rut, how would the rut affect meat? Like, meat is the muscle. It's yep. not like their muscles swell up and get all tough and stringy during the rut. The the nasty smell that animals get during the rut is from external glands. It's not mixed mm-hmm. in the muscle. So that right. whole thing about, you know, animals during the rut taste bad and they're tough and, you know, old yeah. age, all that. I just, I haven't seen it. Like in, yeah. in any animal, I haven't noticed a difference from one season to the next or, you know, age class. Like you said, it's field preparation. And that's, yeah. you leave the hide on an animal for four hours, you're going to start noticing it doesn't taste quite the same as when you strip that hide off as soon as you find it. And I know people yeah. that'll shoot antelope and just cut them in half and put them in the cooler with the hide and everything on it. And I'm like, man, you're asking for trouble there. Wow. Wow. But, there's also people who will shoot them, gut them, throw them in the back of their truck and run down to the bar and watch football game and shoot pool for 12 hours while it's 85 <laughs> degrees out. And then they complain that antelope tastes foul. I'm like, well, go do that with a little steer calf, you yeah. know? Shoot a steer calf, maybe gut shoot him because who knows how well they hit him. And then gut him out, drag him across the prairie for, you know, a half mile. Throw this little steer calf in the back of your truck while you're down at the local bar for 10 hours. And then hang him in your garage for another two days. With the hide and still tell on. Me, with the hide still on. And tell me how good that steer calf tastes. Yeah. So, oh well. Yeah. But, uh, no, I'm, I'm excited now. I, I've got Montana elk tag. Uh, I've got an Arizona elk tag. And uh, I'm... I'll, I'll admit that with having uh, moose meat, uh, it's going to take a pretty special situation for me to pull the trigger on an elk right now. I, like like one standing in front of you, that special? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I, I say that. But you know what happens? There's something changes that when you have an animal in your crosshairs, as much as you intended, I don't know if I'm going to shoot him. Yep. Once you get in the shooting position and you're practicing your breathing and the crosshairs are steady, instinct just takes over it's hard to find a reason not to shoot and then a minute later you're standing there like who pulled that trigger (laughs) that that, that thing's dead over there who who did that no i i know i i i feel lucky this year to to have the meat that i have and the crew they're all excited they're like oh man randy's got a moose we know what that means so the last time i shot a moose there's 10 people who work in this building I think I got a roast and two pounds of hamburger before it all disappeared. <laughs> when you have a community freezer filled with fresh moose meat, I can only imagine that it probably doesn't last. No, and that's, you know, part of the benefit of what we do is our crew, some of them don't get to go out and hunt as much as I do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I share with my neighbors, I share with the crew, uh, and I ate a lot of it myself. I, you know, I, I, 
I've already eaten so much wild game this year. I've eaten all the back straps and tenderloins off my pronghorn. That's gone. Uh, and then the caribou, my tenderloins are gone. Part of one of my back straps is gone. One of Marcus's back straps is gone before we even left camp. Wow. The moose tenderloins, I cooked those in camp. So I am, uh, yeah, been a good six weeks of eating lots of wild game. That's so, great. Yeah. So I'll report back to how yeah. my strategy of using hunting pressure uh, is working out. And, I can't uh, wait to hear about that and the uh, Arizona. I've never applied or drawn or even looked into the late season hunts in Arizona, but you've kind of mm-hmm. piqued my interest a little bit. Once I burn all the points I have on a on a peak mm-hmm. rut hunt, I might uh, might have to join you for a yeah, you know, you a, a Thanksgiving in Arizona sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. No, it sounds great. I uh, I I can't think of anywhere I'd rather be on December first. Because here's the other good part about Arizona opening their elk season December 1st this year, their late rifle hunts. I don't have to frustrate myself by standing in that stupid line that Idaho has, Mm -hmm. this computerized random line, because I'm going to be in some canyon somewhere that doesn't have Wi-Fi. Yep. So. Don't you have an Idaho deer tag? Yeah. Yeah. What's uh, what's your plan for that? Yeah. I'm looking at my calendar trying to think. I tried to give it, I tried to turn it back in. Yeah. And they said, no, you can't. Our season already started. Yeah. Yeah. Because I thought, well, I'll turn it back in. I'd rather have some other person who's going to be, have a calendar where they can give it more effort. Yeah. Uh, But I didn't realize that if the archery season's already open, you can't turn it back. Yeah. So stupid on my part. So uh, I'm trying to carve out a couple of days in November to drive over and do it. Let me know. I've, uh, yeah. I haven't You're bought the one my, who talked me into it. I know, and I haven't bought my deer tag yet, so I can I can buy a deer tag as a resident and drive okay. up there and join you, and it's not too far from where Isaac and Jesse are. And, okay. So, yeah. Well, let yeah, me know. I'll, I'll let you know. And uh, Unfortunately, uh, I do have basketball <laughs> starting November 10th, so my time away is going to be limited. But there's uh, there's weekends. There's Thanksgiving break. There's I can carve out a right. few days here and there. That's admirable of you to continue to coach basketball. Yeah, I like I it. Appreciate you doing that. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I I think I install some competitiveness in the in the kids. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I want to I want to come over and just let me coach or give some pointers for <laughs> one coaching session. <laughs> We'd have refs that would be quitting if they heard you were coming to coach our boys. Like we, know what the, we know what this is going to turn into. and mm-hmm. uh, You got five fouls. If you haven't used at least four of them, you didn't get your money's worth. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you should have a standing rule that anyone who allows a layup gets benched. See, and the problem is with a lot of the younger players today, they use all five of their fouls like in the first quarter, but it's because they're lazy and they stand there and they just reach when somebody dribbles by them and they get these oh. ticky-tacky yeah. little fouls. There's there's nobody. Yeah. There's there's no Bill yeah. Lambeer standing underneath the, the rim waiting for somebody yeah. to drive in and slam them to the key. It's, yeah. It just doesn't happen I anymore. Mean, I, I don't think I ever got called for a ticky-tacky foul. No. I think I, I got called for... You know, now they have this thing like intentional, intentional flagrant. Yeah. yeah, I think I would have got a lot of flagrant. 
<laughs> Look at the back Detroit the Pistons back in the 80s. I mean, the fouls yeah. that they were committing, the, the Jordan rules and all that, they've, they'd, mm-hmm. the whole team would get ejected. They'd get suspended for the season if they played like that now. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying that you do build lame beer and you, you smash somebody in the face or something. Uh, but, you know, you just got to teach these kids that it's kind of like uh, economics 101. You have X amount of assets. The five fouls you have are an asset. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like a, a depreciable, perishable asset that goes away at the end of the game. It's not like you get to carry over your fouls to the next game. Yeah. And if you don't use four of them, you weren't playing very hard. <laughs> At least you weren't you playing know. right. Yeah. I mean, my coach said, Newberg, you know, I expect the other team is going to shoot at least eight free throws today because From you're you. going to use at least four of your fouls. <laughs> yes, sir, coach. And don't use them on ticky-tacky dribble stuff where they just yeah. take it out of bounds and you lose a foul. You make sure that you're no. using it on shots and they're no. not making those shots. Right. After about the second foul, you'd see somebody have a little opening to drive in, and I'd be standing there, and they're like, no, nah, I think I'll stop and take a quick jump shot from yeah. here. And sometimes they'd make them. Yep. And that's good. You know, they earned it. Fine for them. Yep. But they, they were going to be shooting free throws if they got within 10 feet of the basket. <laughs> and I fouled out of a lot of games. You know, I, I was like, you know what? I'm not like an offensive threat to anybody anyhow. So if I fall out in the third quarter, it's not, you know. Your annuity has matured. <laughs> yeah. I, so, yeah, let me come and coach them for a yeah. while. Well, uh, probably won't happen, but okay, just because you'll be busy. I, I just... All right. Well, I hope anyone listening who's a basketball coach, you don't let your kids off the floor with a whole bunch of fouls yet in their pocket. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, that's just, that, that, that's like coaching malpractice. <laughs> oh, man. The game has changed. I guarantee you. The game really? has, oh, yeah. Do you guys play zone or, or man-to-man? Well, we play a little of both. Just, I mean, I'd love to play man-to-man the whole game, but typically we're mismatched at some point. And so oh, okay. if, you know, if, if we have a team that's not tall and we've got a couple tall players on the other team, sometimes we have to go zone and pack it in right. against them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to play man, but sometimes they've got a, a point guard and a shooter on the other team that we just can't keep up with. And so mm-hmm. we've got to go zone right. and keep the perimeter occupied with defense. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it depends. And at the, at that level, you know, you just don't have the luxury usually of having eight players that can just play ball and, Hmm. and play anywhere and allow you to go man defense the whole time. Yeah. I hated playing zone defense. I just felt like I got lazy when I, you do playing zone defense well and the, the problem is you get used to that and then you realize or you you start thinking well i've got somebody behind me that'll stop him if i let him go by and so you just yeah. you get lazy your mentality isn't to hey this is my guy even even though you're in a zone that's why i try to tell him it's still man defense we're just set right. up in a zone if there's a guy in front of you that's your guy and you're playing man defense on him you know, don't just stand yeah. there and wait for him to get position and then get the ball and score and realize, oh, that was my guy. I should have fronted him. And so, yeah, it's it's well, uh, the hard part for me is when I played like high school basketball, we had like mm-hmm. two offenses and one defense. And that was what we right. ran every time up and down the floor. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. 
now you've got you have to have like four different offenses in one set that you're you know running through there and there are times we'll change defense in the middle of a set to try to throw the other team off and you know Mm. it's it's so dynamic and so fast paced that I don't know if I could handle from a coaching standpoint I love it you know because I'm very uh, methodical and and I've got that engineering approach to it but as a player Mm -hmm. man I don't know if I'd have I don't know how well I'd have done at that yeah well, there's a lot of parallels, you know, to sports and to hunting and elk hunting and, and life. Yeah. You know, I can't remember if it was MacArthur or Eisenhower who said, upon the fields of friendly st- strife are sown the, the seeds that on other fields on other days shall bear the fruits of victory. In other words, athletics and sports teach you things that in their military careers were super, super helpful. Yeah. And uh, I think that whether it's an individual sport, a team sport, whatever, I think getting your butt whooped now and then and, you know, having someone who's better than you and worked harder than you and kind of hands you your teeth, uh, that's good. You mean you don't believe in the participation trophies? Uh, we didn't get any participation <laughs> trophies. The participation trophy we got, we got handed the broom and say, you sweep the floor when the rest of the team's done. Yep. Uh, the, you got to participate in janitorial duty as well. You got to participate. Yeah. So, now, uh, do they really do that stuff, or is that just oh. like an urban legend? No, about they do it. There, there, there are leagues they don't even keep score in. There, there are what? yeah, there are baseball, foot, little pee wee football leagues. They don't even keep score because they don't want to make one team feel like they've lost. You're kidding me. No, I heard somebody, I think it was a comedian or something, talking about it, but he showed up and showed up at a game and his buddy was there. He's like, hey, what's the score? And some lady up behind him said, we don't keep score in this league. It's fun. It's for fun. And his Mm -hmm. buddy said, well, we've had fun 11 times and they've had fun four times. So, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you might be onto something, Corey. Maybe states will start selling participation tags. Oh, well, you already have that. You know, you, yeah. hear, you hear people complain that it's national forest land. They should be able to go and hunt at any time they want. And, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't matter what state it's in. Well, you've got a participation tag. You can go and hike around anytime you want. The The animal yeah. belongs to the state, though. And to, to actually hunt and kill an animal, you have to have an actual harvest tag. And that's different. Mm. Well, I know how we got on this tag. It has nothing to do with elk hunting. Well, it does. Everything has to do with elk hunting. Well, true. Yeah. Everything has to do with elk hunting. That's right. I, uh, you know, where I was in camp up in the Yukon, I was the only guy there with the guides being real young and everything that was over 33 or 35 <laughs> years old. So I and you're laid more out, than a week or two above that. Yeah, I laid out such good marriage advice. I'm like, why are we not recording a podcast? This is like gold. And I don't think any of them believed one bit of it. So I'm like, well, you guys just have to figure it out yourself. Then. Yeah. You know, why do I hunt 100 days a year and you guys are doing honeydews and saying, oh, I can't. Sorry, boss. I got to get home this week. And, well, You laid it out for them, huh? Mm-hmm. Just <laughs> black and white. <laughs> like, look, there's this thing called compatibility and incompatibility. It sounds to me like we have an incompatibility issue here. And she should go find another fish. Wow. So hopefully that's, that's, that's pre-marriage advice. 
Well, yeah, it's kind of, it was free marriage. <laughs> okay, because yeah. marital advice—if you give that marital advice—that's that's that's, uh, that's not going to be helpful. True. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd say the best marriage advice is premarital advice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. The best, that, the best avoid- marital advice once you're married is learn to say, "Yes, dear, you're right." Yes, and absolutely. I have not learned that one yet. That's and my wife will probably listen to this podcast. And if I said that's the best advice, she would call me out on it and say, "Well, you haven't learned that one yet." I yep. admit that. So, so while we are doing this podcast, I have a friend in town from Alaska who is one of the handiest guys you'll ever meet. He built his own house. Wow! So he's staying at our house for the last two nights, and he notices that our faucet is dripping. <laughs> And this has been a, a bone of contention for my wife and I for like 12 years. So I'm like, well, just turn it, o- yeah, turn it over to the left and push down on it on the hot setting. Problem solved. <laughs> if you leave it over on the cold side, it, it runs like the toilet's flushed or something. Well, my buddy Jim is like, Randy, I, why don't you fix that faucet for her? I'm like, I've told her to call a plumber a hundred times. She won't call a plumber. So... That's what they're doing right now. He fixed it? Last night, he said, this is like a three-minute fix. So he started on it at like 4 o'clock, and we had dinner reservations at 6 o'clock. So he had to stop to go eat dinner. And then he had a little bit too much wine, so he's like, I better work on this in the morning. So I get a text message this morning. Hey, where's the toolkit? We're we're running down to Home Depot. We're getting a whole new faucet. We're we're, we're not going to replace the little whatever they are, like, cylinder or whatever (laughs) she's getting a whole new faucet out of this it sounds like wow so you know don't be handy well the problem is you've got a handy guy staying at your house i know now your wife's expectations are going to change no she had no expectations (laughs) so she now is like you know you, when you go to Alaska and stay with Jim, you should do this for him, or you should do that. Yeah, I'll do that, honey. You're darn right. I, you know, doesn't require any handiwork. I'll do that. I'll, I'll pack his deer. I'll, you know, I'll whatever. <laughs> I'll help him with his taxes. Yeah, he, yeah. he's fixed a leaky faucet, probably. So something that's, that's been you know. going on as a point of contention for twelve years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that that's kind of the the marriage advice to that is make a list and tell the other spouse, you know, just call the man, pay the man, get it fixed, pay the man. See, and, and you have a valid point there, but on the flip side of that, I'm somewhat handy. I can fix some things. And my wife always, yeah, my wife always has a, a honeydew list, a preseason honeydew list. But that's right. my that's my ticket. You know, if I get all those things done, then she's willing to say, I won't I won't fuss when you're gone for several weeks yeah. hunting. You yeah. know, there's that trade off. I earn that time off. Hold on, let's back up here. What what are you so, doing to earn your yeah, hundred days of fall? All of us have all of us have a preseason honeydew list, Corey. Don't say there that. is nobody listening to this podcast who does not have a preseason honeydew list. Don't say that. My wife's going to hear Here, that, and she thinks that I'm special. You're not. <laughs> Here's the flaw in your logic. You say, I'm handy, and I can save some money. I'm going to go fix all this, and, and my wife is going to think I'm the dearest guy around. I'm going to get to hunt for the next six weeks. Yeah. I say... If I do this and something doesn't get repaired completely correctly and properly, 
I'm going to be the one who gets the phone call on week three to come home and cancel the rest of my elk hunt to fix the, you know, the crapper that is still leaking or something. <laughs> well, I pay the man. So when it isn't a completely good repair, she picks up the phone and says, hey, Tony, come on down. Fix this. Lenny, hey, the oven is still not working. I don't get the phone call. Yeah. I'm out hunting. So. Well, my grandma that, used to always say, if you have time to do a job twice, you had time to do it right the first time. Well, sometimes you don't have the tools or the n- mental capability or the, or just the, I don't have the mental fortitude to focus on it because I'm too busy swearing and cussing and saying, <laughs> hey, the man. My good friend, Mark Hervin in, in uh, Marquette, Michigan, has a saying, it's called pay the man. He says, we don't, I don't even argue about this stuff anymore. I just pay the man. So when the topic comes up, I tell my wife, pay the man. Yep. And there's some, I mean, I mean auto mechanics. I, I don't work on vehicles because I just, I don't, I don't know either. how it's frustrating. And I'm, I'm the same way there. I, it's worth more for me to pay somebody that knows what they're doing than for me to spend my time trying to figure it out. Right. So, so yeah, I made my I made my livelihood telling people, pay me. I'll take care of your tax headache. I'll save you money. Uh, you won't get audited. I'll take care of all those headaches. So how how hypocritical or, or ironic would it be if I said, well, I'm not going to pay some expert. I'm going to figure it out myself. And uh, you know, a little duct tape, bale and twine, and a little JB weld. We got everything fixed there. <laughs> I see your point. But what happens if you are a handyman? Don't be handy. But Don't tell anybody if you are. Well, that's just hard. I mean, if you're a home builder, you you know that you know how to build houses. And if you know how to build yep. houses, you probably know how to fix most of the things that go wrong in a house. Yeah, but if you build a house, you probably got subcontractors or a crew to come and fix that stuff yeah. for you while you're hunting. Yeah. Honey, Joe's going to be over here to fix that window that doesn't shut all the way. Well, to my wife's credit, she just makes a list, and when I do get home, that's when I fix it. She does. She doesn't expect me to yeah. come home from hunting yeah. to fix it. So, I I have a list that is so long. I, I'm like, well, we either need a fire <laughs> or a new house, honey. That list that list has been a point of contention for twelve years. Yeah, yeah, we've been in this house nineteen years. It's like, darn, we we either need a new house or we just need to hope the lightning strikes and we need a fire or something. Because that list is just too long to tackle now. Yeah. Now she throws parts of it away. She's like, well, you're never going to get to this. I'm like, you're right. I'm not. Call the man. Pay the man. <laughs> you know, I hunt and I fish. Um, I, I didn't work 35 years at that desk, chained to that desk, to have to mow the grass and, and fix broken windows and leaky gutters and stuff like that. So yeah. I hunt. There you go. So, what yeah, about somebody who's young, who who mm-hmm. maybe finances don't afford them the opportunity to pay the man for everything, so they yeah, have that, to that learn gets, to figure it out? What's your marital well, advice gets, there? Then my marital advice is do what I did: stay at the office and work harder and earn more overtime or more bonuses and pay the man. <laughs> or go trap beaver or go go you know cut firewood to do do something else to make more money and pay the man. Uh, I'm not going to fix that leaky faucet, dear. I'm going to be out trapping beaver all weekend, and yep. we'll figure it out when I get back. There is no leaky faucet in my house more important than me going out and trapping beaver. <laughs> there is not. 
<laughs> so I, I just don't know what to tell people. You know, I, I've been married. I'm gonna. It's, I'm coming up on my 35th wedding anniversary here in a few months. Your poor wife. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I can but, say the same for mine too, and that's. Uh, but we, have, you know, that's uh, you just. You got to think this stuff through before you get yourself all hopped up and in a hurry. You know, if you're like a, a raghorn bull in the rut and you're not paying attention to anything, you could meet your demise. You got to have a little bit. How did you? How did you woo your wife? How did you get her to even notice you? Hey, she. She. All I can figure is she must have just really been on a down day or something. Her self-esteem must have really been in the crapper that day. Because <laughs> I, I just think that most of us have to show some level of competency just mm-hmm. to be able to convince, you know, a, a female or a, a, a potential spouse that yeah. we're a catch. I mean, it yeah. certainly isn't. We can't. We can't rely on good looks or. Uh, I, I don't have money that. or. I didn't any, have that. Yeah. So I. No, I my just, wife. When when we first met, my wife was making twice what I was more than twice what I was making. Yeah, I was an and, engin- I was an engineer, and my wife had more money and savings than I did when we met and got married. Oh, I married my wife for her money. She knows that. <laughs> she she says that all the time. I mean, in nineteen eighties. Six or whatever it was, 87. She's making 40 some thousand dollars a year. I thought, holy wow. cow, how do you make that kind of money? I'll never make that kind of money. I better grab tight here. And uh, so, anyhow. The, so you kidnapped the, her. I mean, you, you brought nothing maybe. to the table. Zero. What would your buddy say that you worked with? You bring nothing to the table she can't replace by noon tomorrow or something? I, yeah, that's what he said. Don yeah. Bowman, he said, she could replace you by noon tomorrow. Yeah. Behave accordingly. So you didn't have looks. I, you I didn't wanted, have money. You didn't have nope. anything there. I mean, you kidnapped her. I no. I analyzed this. In her dad was a very poor provider, so she was looking for someone who was a provider. So on like our third date, she I just thought, well, I better tell her I hunt a lot. You know, I don't want to drop that one after we get pretty far down the road here. She's like, oh, really? My uncle used to hunt, but no one else in my family hunts. And I'd really like to try some deer meat if you ever had some. So like the third date, I come with a whole grocery bag full of deer burger. Hmm. I'm a provider, man. I'm a, look, I, you aren't going to starve to death if you hang out with me. So you brought I a mean, talent to the table. Yeah. Okay. yeah. She, she was telling that story last night to my buddy Jim. She's like, you aren't going to believe this. On like the third date, Randy shows up at my apartment and my sister, the fashion model, is there. And when Randy leaves, she's like, he brought you deer meat? <laughs> what the hell are you hanging out with this guy for? <laughs> Here we are. Happily so, married 35 years later. Yeah. Yep. And uh, took her hunting all the time. Took her fishing all the time. We had, a, we had a deal. that We hunt and fish every weekend. And if you want to go, there's an open invitation. My buddies don't get to go if you want to go. But if you don't want to go... I'm not staying home and mowing the grass or fixing the, you know, the light fixture. So, yeah, problem solved. Yeah. So I, I think I think you said something at the beginning of the the marital advice section here of the podcast. Uh, premarital advice is the best marital advice you can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because once you once you go down that road oh. and figure out that. Mm, no, yeah. you're not going hunting this weekend. It's yes. uh, I know a lot of people in that situation, and it's you know mm-hmm. it, it's it's difficult. It can be sad, and then the only way to navigate mm-hmm. that is 
you've got to give up something and yeah it's it's a bummer that's why once you've tied the knot so before you're going into this just understand it's way easier to get married than it is to get unmarried okay (laughs) it's way more expensive way more complicated way more painful so you never want to get yourself in the situation where getting unmarried is the solution first of all if you've got yourself in a situation where like man i don't get to hunt 100 days a year well that's the the best advice the post-marriage advice or post-wedding advice is peace not justice so and and then there's some uh, some other do you want to be right or do you want to be happy exactly so here's some other like profiling things you can do okay I always said that if my wife wanted a big, expensive wedding, she probably wasn't for me. Because I'm a tight-ass accountant, right? And I don't have any money to throw a big wedding. And I don't have parents that had enough money to probably drive to the wedding. (laughs) So I thought, well, I'm going to tell her we're eloping and see what the response was. Because she's like, you know, we should get married. We should get married. Yeah, 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 yeah. Finally, I came to my senses and realized what a catch I had in the net. And I'm like, boy, I better get this fish in a boat. For There's a lot of other people, a lot of other people trolling their lures around here. I better get this fish in a boat. And uh, I said, you want to get married on Saturday? No, I didn't say you want to. I said, you know, I think we're getting married on Saturday. She's like, what? I'm like, well, you said you want to get married. It's Sunday. We got till next Saturday. She's like, well, my parents can't get here. Your parents can't. I'm like, that's the point. <laughs> She was good with it. I'm like, you know what? If this woman is willing to forego a a wedding and all that kind of jazz and not put me through the stress of picking out the photographer and the flower colors and and me imposing on all my buddies to say, hey, hey, you know, all 80 of you, would you come and, you know, spend $400 on a tux and fly into town and da-da-da? I'm not going to ask my buddies to do that. And I'm certainly not going to ask him to do that in September or October or November. Well, yeah, that's, that's, so, that goes beyond marriage advice there. That's just So that was the other part. I thought, you know, if she's willing to get married in the winter, she is. she's like, I knew she was a keeper to start with. But when I said, we're going to elope and we're going to elope in the winter, and we're not going to have a honeymoon until tax season's over sometime in May. And she was like, okay, okay, okay. I'm like, holy cow, Randy, you you aren't. A, you, the, she is so far up the rung of the ladder from where you are, you didn't even know the ladder went that high. <laughs> so she, she had very low expectations. That's all I can figure. Yeah. She, she, she must have had, you know, some sort of bad experiences where she said, <laughs> well, this is about as good as it's going to get, I guess. <laughs> I mean, w- And now you hunt 100 days a year. There are a lot of people listening to this that are trying to figure out how they can go for seven days straight and keep peace at home. I know. That that, requires effort and sacrifice and compromise because the rest of the year, the, the, the other 265 days of the year, if Kim says, hey, I want to go to whatever city and I want to go to the opera, I wouldn't I wouldn't go to the opera if you put a gun at my head other than if my wife asked me to go there. Oh, I thought you were going to say, yes, dear, I, I bought you tickets and you and your sister can go. That's what I do. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've tried that before, but sometimes she'll say, I want you to be there and I want you to smile. 
Yes, ma'am. So that's compromise, right? That's, that's like sacrifice, compromise. You, this is a partnership. It's not all you and it's not all the other. So when it's about me, it's hunting season. The other 265 days a year, I look at it like, look, I'm only gone 40% of the year. The other 60% is all yours, darling. <laughs> Just don't ask me to I'm fix giving the more than process. I'm taking. Yeah. Oh. You know, this is a 40-60 deal. You know, we split it right down the middle, 40-60. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so. And you're getting the better end of the deal for sure. Yeah. Don't ask me how we just spent 25 minutes talking about this, but Man, it's really you, important. You are if you want to like, be, you, you've got some energy behind this. I can tell that you have, uh, you've recently discussed it, and I have. Uh, yeah, my poor camera crew was in my truck for 35 hours driving back from the northern parts of the Yukon, having to listen to all the the, the remnants of of what I I laid down some real gold at camp. But I even had some real, I thought some of my best work was on the way home. Yeah. Well, you've got a captive audience. So, they can't get away. What are they going to do? Get out and walk? Yeah. So, no. So, I, they probably need therapy yeah. now. They, they need to go to counseling now yeah. just after that 35-hour road yeah. trip. You know, and, and if you're the woman listening to this, you know, and you like to hunt, you just got to tell them where the bear poops in the woods, you know. This is how it's going to be. If you think I'm having kids while, and raising these babies while you're going out hunting, Nah, I'm going out hunting too, so we better figure this out. Yeah. I don't know. That's just how it goes. Yeah. You know? Man, you need you need your own TV show. I, I, I don't know who would watch. But. Oh, I, it'd be entertaining at least. Even, I mean, there's like Dr. Laura. I've, I've stumbled across who? that a couple. Of, yeah, Dr. Laura on Sirius XM. I found that somehow and listened for about huh. three minutes and... Man, she's really? a, she's so snappy, and her way is the only way. So opinionated, and she cuts people off before they even share any of the facts. And evidently, she has a show, and people listen. So I think you'd do well. I wouldn't cut people off. No. I want to hear the whole details of everything. Totally. So, no, that's what I mean. If you, anyone wants to know what a post recovering CPA is like, you just heard it in the last twenty five <laughs> minutes. Because being a CPA is way more marriage counseling than it is tax advice. That's true. So that is true. Anyhow, it's a hunting season. I hope that you pay the man and you go hunting. Don't be working on the plumbing. You know, that plumbing's still going to be there in January when season over. And you don't got to mow the lawn because there's going to be snow over it in January. They'd worry about it in May. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, I, I, I feel like there is some value in your marriage advice. Somewhere. Some. Dang, some I value. Somewhere. I, I was hoping you were going to say, Randy, you should bottle that stuff and sell it. But no, obviously I didn't. There's definitely portions of that that could be bottled and sold. Yeah. I think if if people listen to country music, old-time country music about, you know, all the woe is me and, and mama got run over by a train and then well, your girlfriend left you at the bar, there's lessons in that stuff that apply to hunting. <laughs> and that's why I listened to Willie's Roadhouse out there on my XM radio. See, that's, you know? yeah. So, but anyhow, yeah. we didn't get to, we didn't get to, the only viewer question or listener question we got to is when you were asking me about hunting that really dark stuff, because we had a uh, an email that came in the other day Did where we? someone asked pretty much a similar question saying, hey, where are they going to be feeding? What are they going to be doing? I'm going to be there October. 
you know, the second first part of the second season in October. I don't want to go in there and mess them up. It was very similar to your question. Other than I think this person said there are only a few openings. Well, find one of those few openings and shoot them when they're there. Yeah. I did see an email that came through that, that uh, I was meant to ask you about, and we're two hours mm-hmm. deep here, so we probably you know don't have time to go through all of them. But it was uh, somebody from Minnesota, and they were talking about the uh, Minnesota Game and Fish Department not allowing the elk population there to expand anymore mm-hmm. because of the damage they're doing to crops and what what yeah. can be done in states like that where you know we're trying to build a bigger pie and expand mm-hmm. elk hunting opportunities but there's some states that are fighting it because right. they're concerned about landowner concerns and damage yeah and right now where the elk are in northwest minnesota is all grain farming mostly um it's it's a heavily intensive agricultural area and along the fringe where the the forest meets that is where the elk hang out and i think they have a cap in minnesota they they have an objective of two or three hundred animals, but there's a lot of other places in Minnesota where elk could be uh, up in the northeast part. It's not great habitat, but there's enough habitat opened up by logging and other stuff that that would be there. Uh, the other part is the Fond du Lac Reservation outside of Duluth is working on an elk reintroduction plant. Hmm. So. There's a there's possibility there. Uh, you know, it really, in a case like that, whatever state it is, you know, some states' agriculture is like king. And that's what's going to rule the day in the legislature, within the agency, whatever. Uh, and so you got to find ways to work within that. And I, I, I don't, every state has a, has a different answer to that. I haven't grown up there just a little bit east of where those elk are. Uh, I get that email a lot. Hey, you're from Minnesota. What, what do you think of this? I'm like, well. You got a political problem, not a biological problem, because yeah. the subspecies of Manitoba elk used to inhabit all of western Minnesota. That was all native. Where these elk are, were native elk. That, that was amazing native elk habitat. So it's not that elk were never there. It's not that there's not elk habitat there. It's, it's we came and encroached in. on their habitat, and now they're... Right. Uh, they don't have the, yeah. the same habitat, or at least the uh, same opportunities to the habitat. Yeah. And if it's the tribes who end up reintroducing them, you know what? Jump in. Help the tribes do it. Because if you think those elk... They're going to stay on imaginary <laughs> lines on a, on a map. Yeah, Not a chance. So, I, I don't know. I mean, Wisconsin uh, reintroduced elk and they're even more of an agricultural state than minnesota uh kentucky reintroduced elk they're every bit of an agricultural state and now kentucky has fourteen thousand elk yeah well i think now they've they've chiseled it down it's more closer to ten thousand. but do you know there's elk uh, in texas mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. west texas has a lot of elk and big Mm -hmm. elk oh yeah yeah unfortunately that's pretty much all private but that's the problem you can shoot them because they're an invasive species there so there's not even a season tags anything like that in in some of it but like you said it's private and the private landowners know the value of an elk and yeah and you know minnesota being as much where this elk habitat is so much private i don't know how you get those landowners on board yeah uh if you say look we'll pay you crop damage I mean, the Kentucky route was, we're 91% private, 9% public. We're going to have to give some of these bull tags to landowners to sell or to yeah. donate or whatever they're going to do. And 
out west, we'd like, no, we don't need to do that. We got all <laughs> kinds of land for elk to live on. But I understand if that's what it takes to get elk on the landscape, you oh, know yeah. what? You you can't take the Idaho or Montana or Wyoming or whatever Nevada solution and try to make that the same solution in a heavily privatized, intensive agricultural state in the Midwest. You're going to have to come up with different ideas. And so, yeah. Okay. I hope they do it because have you seen some of those bulls they do kill out of that Minnesota herd? No. Do they hunt them? Oh, yeah. They do hunt they? them. They, I think they give away like 10 tags a year or yeah. something like that. This year they shot just a couple lunkers. And a few really? years ago they shot, they shot one over 400 inches. Hmm. Uh, but I, I'll never draw because it's open to residents only. Yeah. But, for now. And, uh, yeah. Probably for now and for as long as I'm going to be alive. <laughs> so uh, oh well yeah no it made me think of you and i saw that email just yeah so I, ho- I hope they do it i mean michigan has elk wisconsin has elk pennsylvania um yeah. K- kentucky arkansas Missouri, Tennessee, virginia west virginia you know and 20 years, younger 20 days, years ago maybe one or two yeah. of those states had elk yeah, you so. would have never dreamed that there'd be the number of elk east of the Mississippi as there is now. So yeah. none of that happened easily. It took a lot of time, a lot of effort, uh, advocacy by hunters and people who love wildlife, advocacy by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, money from state agencies, from hunters, from RMEF and others. It, it didn't ha- None of those successes that we celebrate happened just like, Oh yeah, I, I think I'll do that, and it, it was done. Yeah, you know anything worth having in the terms of wildlife and conservation? It's never easy. It's never comfortable. And it's always inconvenient. Those are my my three points of conservation. Yep. So. Well, Corey, I better let you go if you're going to yeah. go get your neck straightened out, or maybe you're going to go pop a wheelie and do an evil Knievel or something. I, let me know if you're going to do that. I'll I'll drive over to, to Donnelly and sell hot dogs at the <laughs> Corey Jacobson Evil Knievel display. No, I won't be doing that. I used to think that, man, if you if you wrecked a motorcycle and had sore muscles, the best thing to do is just get back on and ride it, and they'll loosen back mm-hmm. up. But I'm uh, realizing after a couple of weeks here of packing a backpack and continuing to ride a motorcycle, that's not the solution anymore. Yeah. Well, while we've been on the phone, I got a text from Bo Beatty saying, hey, instead of four llamas, I'm sending you six. <laughs> so. Good. Well, you'll have, you'll have four of them broke in and trained for me when I pick them up here in a week and a half. Yeah, well, I I have this spare lot. You've seen my setup out at my house. I, I stake them out over in the spare lot. And this afternoon, when word gets out that the, Randy's got the llamas, it'll be a petting zoo over oh, yeah. at my house. Strangers show up, people show up. I'm like, hello, uh, this is private property, uh, you know. <laughs> and llamas hate dogs. Uh, the, the llamas and dogs don't get along. So people show up with their dogs. I'm like, you might want to get this dog out of here if it wanted to have its teeth much longer. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, well, That's I'm heading great. in tomorrow, so I won't have the petting zoo set up for too long. That's good. So, Okay. Uh, anyhow. Well, I'm uh, excited to hear how it goes, and then uh, mm-hmm. we probably won't connect before I get out. So when, when I get back, we can connect and report on our mm-hmm transitionary post-rut to late season yep. hunting adventures. Yeah, you, 
I'm hunting a way easier period of the elk calendar, the first part of the post rut, than you are with the later part of the post rut. So I have far, far fewer excuses for not running into elk than you do. You have, uh, you have like the whole book of excuses are Excellent. available to you. That is good so, to hear. <laughs> I only got like three three chapters of the book are available to me. Oh. So. Hopefully I don't have to use too many of them, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll catch up and report and uh, good luck to you. Same to you, Corey. Have a great day. You too. Thank, thanks for being here, folks.